Hi, I'm Kathleen Sabo of New Mexico Ethics Watch, and this is Ethics Now, conversations about ethics in real life. Our guest today is Clifford Rees. He is a former New Mexico state government attorney with 23 years of service with the New Mexico Department of Health. In the aftermath of the World Trade Center bombing, he was given a leadership role by the New Mexico Department of Health, the Department of Public Safety, and the Attorney General's Office to study state emergency preparedness laws and recommend legislation. He's recently been appointed to the New Mexico Department of Health's Medical Advisory Team slash Legal and Ethics Committee to share his institutional memory of the legislative work he and then State Senator Dede Feldman and others did in 2002-2003 to enact the New Mexico Public Health Emergency Response Act, otherwise known as FERA, that's the Public Health Emergency Response Act, now being used by the governor for the first time ever in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Cliff wants us to know that he is interested in the intersection of law, history, and politics, much to our betterment. Welcome, Cliff. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Kathleen. Thanks for the invitation. Absolutely. Now, Cliff, this Public Health Emergency Response Act, enacted in 2002-2003, tell us a little bit about what it was like during that time and why it was enacted then, please. Sure. That was a very challenging time. Let, let's go back in history about 20 years. And those of us that are old enough to remember, uh, we remember remember Y2K. Mm -hmm. Remember on December 31st, 1999, all of our uh, computers were going to crash uh, because they weren't set properly. Well, that didn't happen, luckily. But shortly thereafter, in May of 2000, here in New Mexico, we had the terrible Cerro Grande fire. Mm. that got into the western side of Los Alamos, destroyed some homes, required the evacuation of Los Alamos County, basically. And that really was around the time at the Department of Health, and I was an attorney there from 1981 until 2004, the Department of Health realized that we really needed to make emergency preparedness plans in the event of an emergency that required public health support. Uh, we partnered with the Department of Public Safety, which in those days had the Emergency Management Division, ran the Emergency Operations Center for the state here in Santa Fe. Those duties since 2007 have become part of the New Mexico Homeland Security and Emergency Management Department. But it was Department of Public Safety in those days, and public health began to partner with public safety. We really hadn't done that before around emergency preparedness. And it proved to be a very smart move because then 9-11 happened on mm. September 11th, 2001. In the aftermath of 9-11, the Department of Health, sec then Secretary Alex Valdez, was invited to speak to the Interim Legislative Health and Human Services Committee. I recall about Thanksgiving of 2001. And the the topic for the health secretary to present, I believe Senator Dede Feldman was the co-chair of the committee then, as was former Representative Dennis Pickrow from Albuquerque, you may remember, who has since retired. Secretary Valdez was asked to do a presentation on whether New Mexico had the statutory basis 
for the Department of Health to respond to a public health emergency. Mm. You may remember right after 9-11, there were the anthrax letters sent to various people uh, in the media and on Capitol Hill. And there was concerns about anthrax being weaponized. And later there were concerns about smallpox being weaponized. And there was a federal program around that. Uh, The secretary asked me as the sort of designated lead attorney on emergency preparedness legal issues to help him research and prepare his testimony for the Interim Legislative Health and Human Services Committee. And I remember that, Kathleen, it's probably the very first internet search I ever did. Mm. Because if you also remember back in 2001, these devices that we sort of take for granted now were very new. And I was certainly learning uh, firsthand. I was used to the old legal pad and pen and desktop telephone. Uh, I was learning the new technology at a somewhat older older age, and I probably should have been learning it, but there it was. So what so did I, you search? What was your search? So I, I was able to locate on the internet the Model Health Emergency Powers Act. Okay. A model act is not law. It's, it's draft law, if you will. It's a model, literally, for states to look at and adopt if, as it fits the, the state scheme in individual states. As you know, Kathleen, um, public health is largely in the domain of the states. Mm-hmm. Of course, there is a federal public health function. We all know about the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, popularly known as the CDC. But most of the so-called boots on the ground, as we see now during the COVID-19 pandemic, are in the states. And some uh, New Mexico has a centralized public health system, which means pretty much all of the district and county health offices you see around the state, they're actually state offices. Mm-hmm. And they're supervised by the State Department of Health. Other states have decentralized public health systems. We've seen in California, for instance, the county health officers have a lot of legal authority and have been in the forefront of California's battle against COVID-19. And there is also a, a California state health department. But we have a centralized health system, public health system, since statehood, since 1912. So what I found, Kathleen, was there was a model act, and I read it, and I realized we had none of those powers in New Mexico state statute that were laid out in this model act. I reported that to the secretary, and the secretary did provide testimony along those lines to the Interim Health and Human Services Committee in late 2001. So, uh, so you set the stage now for for how that began, and you weren't operating in a vacuum, which is good. Now we're going to be talking a little bit about what's ethical uh, in terms of considerations and other things. So let's just hear what you what you, when I say ethical, what you hear in that word, so we can we can have a little agreement between ourselves and the listeners. I'd be glad to. Let me share what I understand to be ethical in the context of a public health emergency. And then if you would like, I'd be glad to pick up the story about what happened after Secretary Valdez testified to the Interim Health Human Services Committee in late 2001 that we really had no state statutes on the book relating to a public health emergency. We have had since 1919, when the state health department was created during the Spanish influenza 
so-called Spanish influenza, probably misnamed. That's another story. Yeah. Uh, in 1919, we were the only state that didn't have a state health department. Wow. And as a result of the faulty, I would say, response to that pandemic in 1918-1919, health department was created, a public health act, which we still have today, was enacted. And we had day-to-day -day legal powers to deal with communicable diseases, but not in the large numbers we're dealing with now. So you ask about what, what is ethical in the public health context. And I was fortunate this week to be on a webinar with some of my former colleagues from the Network for Public Health Law. It's a national network funded by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation to provide technical assistance around public health legal matters. And my former colleagues were speaking on that very topic. And so I made some notes and let me share with them, with you, what they said. Sure. I don't want to take, sorry, take credit for this. I want to make sure it's, it's attributed. So of course, one of the prime issues ethically in a public health emergency is the balancing of individual rights mm -hmm. versus the right of society to protect itself from people who are ill and may be a health threat to other members of the population. And we see this play out today. Mm -hmm. I don't need to go into that. If you want my, my personal opinion, I'd be glad to share what I think of those so-called protests. But there are people who are having challenges, let's say, with having temporary restrictions on their freedom to move about. So mm -hmm. they're losing money. I understand it. But there's a bigger issue here. And in fact, this brings up what's called the social contract that we have with each other. We don't have a written agreement with you not to communicate a disease to you, but I have an obligation as a member of society to take precautions to safeguard you and my family and anyone else I may have contact with. So we have the balancing. Of course, there's the Hippocratic Oath that doctors agree to, which, which applies to public health, do no harm. Right. Whatever the measures are to respond, that we do no harm or at least less harm. And then of course, the, the opposite of that perhaps is do good. Whatever we do needs to be a positive step that is intended to help people. We're not going to experiment with people. We're not going to use them as, you know, lab mice or guinea pigs. We're going to use tried and true methods in the public health arsenal to make the situation better. And then in terms of messaging, we call it messaging now. They didn't call it that back in 1919. Keep our promises and be honest with the public. So honest, I think you know what that means. Uh, honest, as I understand, is, is a Greek word that means to be one with what is. Mm -hmm. So we understand that our public health officials, our governor, our elected officials, they all need to be honest. They can have different opinions. They need to be honest about what they are saying to the public. And of course, when we make a promise, we keep promise. And that is all part of the trust that we should have uh, in the government officials now who are handling the situation here in New Mexico in particular. So, and I can talk more about some of the messaging, some of the messaging um, tips well, me, for public health. Ask, yeah, let me, let me ask you though, Cliff, because when you, so you have that information now, and I don't know, was that information that you had at the time that people were crafting the Public Health Emergency Response Act? And, and also, when you look back, with that information, with those thoughts about ethics or definitions or balancing, did, did you get it right? Did people get it right? So we did know about it. Perhaps we expressed it differently in those days. 
messaging now, political messaging in particular, is much more sophisticated, I think. But here's what we knew, Kathleen. We have known since the Bill of Rights, that uh, 1787, that the uh, in the Constitution, the Tenth Amendment, says that powers not specifically given to the federal government are reserved to the states. There's been case law, U.S. Supreme Court case law, that goes all the way back to 1824, a case called Gibbons versus Ogden. And I hope the members of your audience who are challenging the state's authority to act as, as the state has acted, hear this, that as far back as 1824, the U.S. Supreme Court has said that states have the power to quarantine people who may be a threat to the public. And in another case, 1905, case called Jacobson versus Massachusetts, the Supreme Court, U.S. Supreme Court, by a seven to two vote said that, uh, that mandatory smallpox vaccinations are constitutional as long as it doesn't injure the recipient of the vaccine. Upheld the state's power to do exactly what I said, to protect society while not harming individuals. So we have alternatives, of course, to people that don't want to follow what we are using now, uh, isolation and quarantine, two different topics, two different uh, techniques for different situations. We're using those tried and true methods that go back a long time uh, to try to, as we say, flatten the curve and prevent unnecessary spread of this virus. So yes, we, we knew that public health's power is, not, is limited, but it's also pretty broad, especially in an emergency situation. Well, let's let's talk briefly about one of the ways that y'all balanced uh, individual rights with the rights of the collective, and that's through adding some opportunities to challenge actions. Is it not, Cliff, within that Public Health Emergency Response Act? That's right. Uh, just just to pick up on the chronology, we decided uh, the policymakers and the department. Uh, in 2002, during the 2002 legislative session, not to rush into uh, proposing or attempting to enact ill-conceived measures that didn't take into consideration these types of ethical issues that you're talking about. And the legislature did what I think was a very wise thing. There were identical memorials. And you know, having worked at the session, as I have for many years, to get various pieces of legislation enacted, that a memorial it does not have the force of law, but it's a direction. It's usually a request to an agency or agencies to study an issue and make legislative proposals. So in the 2002 session, right after Secretary Valdez testified, then Senator Dede Feldman and then Representative Gloria Vaughn in the House introduced and passed identical measures to have a study of a more in-depth study than what I did for Secretary Valdez during calendar year 2002 to make recommendations to the legislature in the 2003 long session. And I was very fortunate to be appointed to be a, a co-leader of that study along with John Wheeler, who was then the general counsel of the Department of Public Safety, and Jessica Sutton, who was then an assistant attorney general in the attorney general's office doing health law for then attorney general Patricia Madrid. So I'd be glad to dis uh, describe that process very briefly. Sure. We were able to get a federal grant from the Centers for Disease Control, which to its credit invested money in the states to do public health legal preparedness along these lines. 
We had about eight town hall meetings during calendar year 2002. Uh, we reached out to various groups, particularly groups that we thought would oppose the legislation in the 2003 session, groups like the New Mexico American chapter of the American Civil Liberties Union or the Hospital Association or any other uh, affected organizations that we thought would have a stake in being impacted by a proposed Public Health Emergency Response Act. And Cliff, and so, did, you, did you do these town halls around the state in various parts of the state as well? Yes, we did. We took Excellent. it all around the state. As I recall, we went to Albuquerque, Farmington, Las Cruces, Las Vegas, Taos, Santa Fe. Uh, so we went all around the state and we invited local legislators because we knew that they were ultimately going to vote on whatever we proposed. Uh, of course, the press and emergency managers and the public. Uh, we used uh, radio interviews with radio stations to publicize them and other media. We were able, through the grant, to hire a wonderful facilitator by the name of Lois Taylor, who did all of this for us. And then we also, the attorneys, uh, we, the three of us, worked with legal consultants at the Institute of Public Law at UNM. Mm -hmm. And in academia, uh, Professor James Hodge, who is now the health law professor at Arizona State University College of Law in Phoenix, uh, to advise us as we took the Model Act, adapted it for New Mexico, and got input about things that weren't addressed in the Model Act that it was believed should be included in the, the proposed state statute that we ultimately took to the legislature in 2003. What were some of those things, if you can remember, that were unique to New Mexico? Did oh, I remember. <laughs> yeah, you remember? <laughs> I remember well. So, for example, uh, before the bill was introduced, we had shared it, of course, with the University of New Mexico Health Sciences Center. And I got a phone call one day at my office at the health department in Santa Fe from uh, Dean uh, Paul Roth, who was the dean of the medical school at UNM. He's now the chancellor of the, he may have retired already, I know he was about to retire, chancellor of the Health Sciences Center. And he said, Cliff, you know, your, your draft bill doesn't address tribes or pueblos in mm -hmm. any way. And I said, Paul, you're absolutely right. We'll, we'll take a look at it. So if you look at the FARA, and if your listeners are interested, you can, you can Google section 12-10A-1 uh, at SEC. Uh, there's more to it than just one. Uh, you can um, read the whole statute, and we invite people to look at it. This is the first time it's ever been used in 17, 18 years, so it's new, and we're glad that it's there. We're sorry that it has to be used in this circumstance, but we're glad that it's there. So we added a provision in the law that uh, out recognizes and respects sovereignty of tribes and pueblos and provides for memoranda of understanding, for written agreements of cooperation in times like this between the state of New Mexico and the tribes. And you've seen some of that. You've seen cooperation uh, between the state health department, the Department of Public Safety, state police, and the tribes and pueblos who unfortunately are being, some of them are being hit, as you know, very hard by the uh, COVID-19 virus. So that's one example. Another one came up during the session. And you know, when we track legislation, we have to be, it helps to be, I should say, uh, flexible. Yes. Uh, and agree to what we call there at the Roundhouse friendly amendments that don't harm the bill. And if it gets 
one or more votes for it to pass, that's great. And so in a House committee, then House member, now Senate Senator Mimi Stewart said, um, Cliff, John, Jessica, what about if people are isolated or quarantined by court order, what about their jobs? Can we protect the jobs of people who, through no fault of their own typically, uh, need to be separated from society until they're no longer a danger to society? Can we protect their jobs while they are not able to go to work? And we looked at each other and asked the sponsor, of course, is that a friendly amendment? Is that okay? We all said, sounds good to us. Uh, and so there is a provision, a, a no job discrimination provision also in our law that was not in the Model Act. So there's two examples of how we modified it for New Mexico based on great suggestions from uh, legislators and interested parties. Well, and uh, certainly I imagine we're seeing the the memorandums of understanding with the tribes and pueblos as they go through, you know, horrible situations now up in the northwest part of the state. But um the, the second part, the job uh, security, or is that being used right now? Is that a provision that's that's in effect under this under the uh, the act currently? So it is law, as far as I know, to date, as we're recording this, there have been no involuntary commitment proceedings for isolation or quarantine. Okay. Let me quickly explain the difference. Yeah, it's please do. Inter interchangeably, and that's medically and legally not correct. So quarantine is probably what, what you, your family, and my family have been doing. And it means, thankfully, we have no symptoms, but we may have been exposed to someone who may be carrying the virus. And so we have agreed voluntarily to self-quarantine right. and separate ourselves from most of our normal activities and remain at home to the extent possible. That's quarantine. You may, be, you may have been exposed, but you don't have symptoms. And typically the length of the quarantine is what scientists think is what's called the incubation period. Right. The period of time it takes from exposure to the time when symptoms do appear. We're guessing 14 days. I hope the scientists are right, but that's what we've been using as a rule of thumb. That's quarantine. No, no symptoms, but you may have been exposed. Isolation, by contrast, means you do have symptoms. So obviously you've been exposed and you do have symptoms. And when we see People in hospitals or healthcare settings, uh, emergency rooms, and you see the healthcare workers wearing the protective equipment, the PPE, we call it personal protective equipment. Those people are being isolated, and they may or may not uh, have, been, have been isolated voluntarily. They may have voluntarily showed up at the hospital, but if they are infectious, and let's say they think they're well enough to leave, then it's possible that a court order could be used if, if the medical staff believes and the health department believes they should not be out in the public. And it's possible to use, and we'll talk about this, I think this is what you want me to get to, a very, a very extensive due process court yeah. procedure that we built in to the Public Health Emergency Response Act. Again, to balance the interests of society to be protected versus the individual's right not to be deprived of his or her liberty unless they're afforded what we call due process, D-U-E process, the opportunity to be heard and to have representation of counsel, to have a fair, neutral uh, decision maker about whether they should be temporarily deprived of their liberty, and then what the conditions of confinement, if you will, will be, should there be clear and convincing evidence, which is the highest standard of proof other than the criminal 
standard of beyond a reasonable doubt. Clear and convincing evidence, that's the standard used in mental health commitments. And we used it here for these types of commitments because people are in a civil proceeding, not a criminal proceeding, being temporarily at least deprived of their liberty until they're no longer a threat to the public. But the, the balancing that goes on is people have a right to challenge this isolation in court, do they not, under the act? Absolutely. So, it, so keeping in mind the need for public health to take immediate action to prevent the spread of a disease, there is what's called a temporary hold provision for, I believe it's five days, if I recall. There's actually flowcharts that, that um, are given to judges and, and the attorneys involved in, the, in, this, in this process to track it. So someone can be temporarily held for a maximum of five days. Within those five days, if the person tests positive and the health department believes that person is a threat to public health, then the health department has to file a petition to hold the person longer. Okay. And that petition includes then, of course, an opportunity to get counsel or have one appointed if they can't afford one to represent the individual, a court hearing before a neutral district judge. The hearing would probably be held remotely by video for obvious reasons or uh, any other electronic means. Wouldn't be in a courtroom where people were exposed to anybody. Uh, and then the, the Department of Health has the burden of proof, as I said, by clear and convincing evidence, a very high standard that this person is a danger to themselves or others and should be held uh, and separated from the public. Now, we don't force treatment on anyone, but if a person has been determined to have the disease and is a danger to the health of the public, they can be held until they're no longer a danger, whether they get treatment or not, and who knows how long that would be. There's review periodically of the order. And also the Department of Health, of course, has the obligation to make sure the person, if they choose treatment, gets treatment. And anyone who may also be exposed, let's say quarantine members of the family, there's also various other rights, rights of access to the outside world, to information about what's going on, to an attorney, of course, of course, food and shelter and medicine. And so all of that is provided in some detail in the involuntary quarantine and isolation provisions of the act. But as far as I know, to date, we have not had to, we, the health department, has not had to have to use those proceedings. I suspect we will hear about that if, if petitions are filed. Now, looking as you probably are with interest at the application of this act for the first time, uh, are you seeing anything that you wish had been included or that you might even recommend? Let's say this is a long process. We go through wave after wave after wave until there's a vaccine or herd immunity, whatever. Is there anything that you see from the outside that you wish had been included in this act? Not so much included in the act, uh, but um, what uh, we are seeing is that there has not been full implementation of the act. Right. And by that, I'm not referring to the health department. I think they are fully implementing the act and they have done their due diligence to the public. But for example, there is a compensation provision in the act that uh, allows hospitals, if their hospital beds or their supplies are required by the state to be used. The governor does have the power to use those beds and use those supplies to move them perhaps to another part of the state where it's needed. And there's a provision for rules to basically judge and determine 
how much compensation the hospitals need if they don't get the compensation that they think mm. they deserve. Those rules were supposed to have been promulgated by the attorney general as a neutral arbiter. And I mentioned there was an assistant attorney general involved in the creation of this act. And I appreciate that then Attorney General Madrid agreed to allow her office to do this. As far as I know, though, Kathleen, those rules have never been promulgated. So I hope some attorney general's office takes a look at that, because I suspect in the not too distant future, this could be an issue. Okay. So that, that's one issue. Um, a second one, and I believe that there is some attention to this, is that we mentioned, I mentioned the due process procedures in district court for involuntary isolation and quarantine. Uh, I've been involved in a training, a webinar, to train attorneys on, outside the health department on how to do this. My personal opinion, strictly personal opinion, is that I think it would be useful for the New Mexico Supreme Court, which issues the rules of procedure for the courts at the various levels here in the state, to issue special rules for these proceedings to answer some of the questions that the attorneys who were being trained had during this webinar back on April 10th, uh, about two weeks ago. So I hope that's in the works. I, I have been able to directly and indirectly uh, communicate with, with people who are involved with the judicial system about this. Uh, I don't know if that's true, and I haven't seen it. But those are two implementation uh, items that, you know, you know, we have what one of my colleagues in, the, in public health calls the red zone and the green zone. Mm. Uh, in the aftermath of 9-11, we were in the red zone. We had the attention of the policymakers. We were able to pass not just the Public Health Emergency Response Act, but other legislation, which I can talk about if you'd like, to lay the legal foundation for what we're dealing with today. But, you know, after a couple of years, there's no pandemic and uh, the interest wanes and our policymakers move on to other things. Uh, and I call that the green zone, where we're not going to get much done. We're back in the red zone, Kathleen. And it'll be interesting to see, particularly here in New Mexico, how our policymakers uh, identify gaps and fill those gaps so that we'll be prepared uh, even better for what I hope doesn't happen, but the next time. Well, Cliff, you know, and I'm, so I'm curious whether there are still ethical questions to be considered when taking action and continuing to take action under the FARA, under the Public Health Emergency Response Act. Yes, you, you mentioned when you introduced me that I was appointed to the medical advisory team of the New Mexico Department of Health. It is, the, the medical part is being led by a wonderful emergency room physician who is now the chief medical officer at the University of New Mexico Health Sciences Center, Dr. Mike Richards, who I had the privilege of working with many years ago when he was on contract with the Department of Health as what's called the statewide emergency medical services medical director uh, advising on medical issues uh, around EMS, prior hospital and uh, med med you know, medical provision mm -hmm. in the field. Uh, he is the overall head and then the wonderful, in my opinion, uh, health law professor emeritus at the University of New Mexico, Rob Schwartz, is heading the law and ethics committee that I'm part of. So one of the issues that that committee has looked at and is ready to make recommendations, and I believe has made recommendations, but I'm glad to say we haven't had to implement it yet, we meaning the governor, is scarce medical resources. If our emergency rooms and our hospitals here in New Mexico are overwhelmed 
by what we hope won't happen, a surge of patients who need uh, significant medical care and we don't have enough equipment, we don't have enough medicine, how do we ration that? What is an ethical, fair way to determine, yes, you will get the ventilator and I won't if we both need it? And so that is being looked at. Uh, I won't discuss the details of that because that's for the governor to announce when and if needed. But I do want to assure your, your listeners that um, really smart people, people smarter than I am, certainly, uh, with medical and legal backgrounds are looking at these issues now and are planning for what might happen a week from now, two weeks from now, a month from now, or heaven forbid, if there's a second wave next winter, as, as has been discussed by Dr. Fauci and the CDC and others, uh, we're, we're planning ahead. You know the old saying, if, if you fail to plan, you have planned to fail. Right, and right. so we are our leaders who are taking the lead in this public health emergency response, understand that. And there is planning going on for things that have not really occurred yet, but when they do occur, hopefully we will be ready for that. Well, and I want to refer people back to our last episode. We spoke with uh, bioethicist Dr. Joan Gibson. She was the founder and director of the Health Sciences Ethics Program at UNM. And we we talked, you know, to some length about the question that we just talked about. Was there any panel that was going to be making these kinds of priority decisions? At that point, it hadn't been publicized that that was actually going on. There was the hope that it was, and it's good to know that it is and that there are people that that can be trusted in in those positions. And and just to assure your your listeners, uh, I'm not giving away any secrets. Uh, Rob Schwartz, the chair of the Legal and Ethics committee has spoken publicly about the fact that these discussions and planning Mm -hmm. uh, are taking place. It was in the newspaper, I believe, last weekend. So uh, I do want to reassure people that it's very difficult, Kathleen. You know, I've spent 25 years as an attorney in the executive branch, and I understand from my experience how it's very easy to be consumed by the day-to-day crisis, the minute-by-minute crisis. We need to respond to the governor's office by 5 o'clock on this request. So it's hard for the day-to-day responders, if you will, to do that kind of long-range planning. So this is a service that people who are are not immediately involved in the response, like myself, um, willingly perform to have uh, a little more uh, opportunity for thought, consideration, deliberation, without the pressure of the we must decide this in the next half hour kind of scenario, which, which I know all too well. Frankly, I'm glad I'm not doing that part, but we all have a part that we can play. And so I'm delighted that um, I was asked to provide my institutional memory, uh, as you described earlier. So one of the things uh, that you said to me in preparation for this interview when we spoke ahead of time was that it's important to remember that we're not the first people to go through a pandemic. We're just, it's the first time it's happening on, quote, our watch. And so you have this interest in the intersection of history and law and politics. And I'm wondering if you feel that there are things that we can learn ethically and otherwise from looking back at past pandemics and specifically the one that's closest to our reach, the 1918 influenza. 
Absolutely, there are lessons to be learned. I think that's part of my love of history was how did we get to where we are today? Mm. And while I think each era is different, E-R-A era is different uh, and considerations have changed. I mean, we couldn't have imagined back in 2002, 2003, that 17, 18 years later, there would be the pervasiveness and the dependency on the internet, for instance, and the various means of communications we have. And I think that's both a blessing and also a challenge. The blessing is that people like you and I can have this conversation. We can actually see images of each other uh, without having to be in the same room. Uh, so we can keep that safe social distancing. And of course, the challenge is there's a lot of misinformation that also gets transmitted through these mm -hmm. social media and other uh, methods of communication that we also couldn't have foreseen uh, back 18 years ago when we were discussing this. So in terms of past lessons, uh, we know throughout history, uh, we can go back to the Bible. Uh, we can go back to the Black Plagues of the 1400s and the various types of influenza that have uh, affected the world. Uh, swine flu and uh, SARS and Ebola, they're all not influenzas, but they're all communicable diseases mm -hmm. that have taken various tolls on countries, regions, and the world. The Spanish flu, so-called Spanish flu, is, is probably pretty similar to what we're dealing with now uh, in terms of the fierceness of the virus and the way it spread around the world. Of course, World War I created a perfect storm of conditions to help spread that virus worldwide. But remember back in 1918, 1919, they, they couldn't even see the virus. They didn't have microscopes right. that we have now to even identify what it is that we're dealing with or they were dealing with. Of course, they didn't have the hospital facilities. They didn't have the capacity to create vaccines that we have now. They didn't have the ventilators. Uh, they also didn't have the due process. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, one of my favorite characters uh, from public health is a woman by the name of Mary Mallon, M-A-L-L-O-N, who probably isn't known to most people who hear that name. But I bet you would recognize her if I used her nickname, which was Typhoid Mary. Yeah. And back in 1906, she was uh, a single woman, an Irish immigrant, a cook on Long Island for the wealthy families out there. She was an asymptomatic spreader of typhoid. And she was uh, involuntarily quarantined in a public health hospital on an island off the coast of the Bronx, New York. Uh, and she lived there for quite some time. And I always wondered when I, when I heard the story and I researched it, why didn't she get in touch with the ACLU? Why didn't she get, uh, you know, lawyer up and get, um, get freed if she was asymptomatic? It turns out that the American ACLU wasn't created until 1920. So there was no ACLU in those days to call and say, I need a lawyer. I need somebody that knows public health law. Help me out here. I'm faced. I'm facing, I'm, I'm, I'm just a simple Irish uh, immigrant. And by the way, there is a long history also of scapegoating immigrants. And I have a, a wonderful book here. Yes, that, let's get to that portion where you can recommend. There are several. This is one that's called Quarantine. We pulled it up here. I have no proprietary interest in any of these books, but this is done by, this was written by Professor Howard Markell, M-A-R-K-E-L who I'm not sure if he still is, but when I met him at a National Public Health Law Conference back in about 2005, 
uh, is a uh, professor of public health, was at the University of Michigan, a very fine school, with a very fine public health school. And it's about Eastern European Jewish immigrants in New York City during uh, epidemics. And they had a variety of types of infectious diseases. Uh, I mentioned typhoid and uh, smallpox and yellow fever in 1892 all the way back in 1892. And uh, Mexican-Americans and Mexican nationals have also been subjected to discrimination during times like this along our border uh, between El Paso and uh, Mexico. So this is not new, uh, that there is a historical connection. And unfortunately, we've seen that card, political card played today, personal opinion, of course. Um, there's some other books. Would you yes. like me to mention a couple other books Please, that I would love highly that. recommend, especially those of us who find ourselves with a lot of free time on our hands at home and are looking for books that we could perhaps order online and have delivered to our homes safely and read. So one of the finest books about the Spanish flu, so-called Spanish flu, is called The Great Influenza by a wonderful author by the name of John Barry, B-A-R-R-Y. He wrote this book, I'm waving it around here. He wrote this book in 2005, and he just recently updated it with an afterword, a very uh, foresightful afterword that he wrote in 2018. Oh, 2018. Almost perfectly describing what we're facing today. He is now uh, an adjunct professor at the Tulane University School of Public Health in New Orleans, or Orleans, depending on how you want to pronounce it. And I saw him a couple of days ago being interviewed on CNN. And he is a, a terrific writer and very, very knowledgeable. And I highly recommend reading The Great Influenza if you're interested in the 1918-1919 Spanish flu. And, and I also want to mention, let me reach over here, that not all of the pandemics or public health emergencies are the result of viruses or of infectious diseases. This is a book that we used quite a bit when we were testifying on uh, the Public Health Emergency Response Act when it was being created. And it's a book that was written about the 1919 heat wave in Chicago in 1995. It's written by an excellent author by the name of Eric Kleinberg, K-L Kleinenberg, K-L-I-N-E-N-B-E-R-G. He wrote what he called a social autopsy of what happened in Chicago in the summer of 1995 uh, and how the emergency response system worked well, but also sadly failed in many ways, especially the elderly and people who couldn't get out of their overheated apartments and died sadly, you know, very horrible, horrible deaths because of this heat wave. So it isn't always a virus. It isn't always communicable diseases. There are natural and man-made causes. And by the way, in the definition of a public health emergency, we recognize that these um, public health emergencies may be the result of either man-made or naturally occurring events. And it may be in the entire state and it may be just a part of the state. And so that can be tailored in the public health order that we saw the governor issue for the first time on March 11th of this year. Uh, to the particular situation. Now, if, if you're not a nonfiction person like I am, let me recommend a couple of fiction books by terrific authors. Uh, one is uh, about the, also about the 1918-1919 Spanish influenza, Catherine Ann Porter, Pale Horse, Pale Rider, 
very moving tale. She lost her fiance in the Spanish influenza and writes about that. And then there's two great books that I have read and I've asked my college age daughter who is self quarantining at, during her junior year abroad over in Tokyo mm. uh, and waiting for her semester to start online May 11th at Waseda University. I visited her recently and I have a international tale to tell, but there's a great book called Blindness by Jose Saramago. Um, you may not have heard of him. It's in English, and he uh, won the Nobel Prize for Literature for this book. And then, of course, I, I don't have it here, but there's a book we probably all read in college, those of us that remember college or went to college, and that's Albert Camus' The Plague, mm -hmm. a 1947 novel about mysterious disease that uh, rampaged through Algeria, which, of course, in those days was a French colony. Well, now independent. And I want to let our listeners know, Cliff, that uh, beneath the uh, program description on sites, we'll have a list of resources, which will include the titles and authors of these books. So if you missed it in the watching, you can find it underneath the program description. So Cliff, in closing, I want to give you an opportunity to just you know, let us know if there's anything else you want uh, listeners, the public to know uh, about the application of the Public Health Emergency Response Act or just any other ethical or other considerations that, that you think are important right now. I'd like your listeners to know, Kathleen, that the Public Health Emergency Response Act was written so that the state, the state policymakers, both in the legislative and executive branch, would have a roadmap to mm -hmm. respond to this type of situation that we're facing now, uh, the pandemic that we're facing now. Uh, it is, I think, a good thing that it went through a very extensive public process with a lot of input by in all interested parties who were interested in providing us with input uh, to lay out the roadmap for not only how we, uh, the governor declares a public health emergency, but how state agencies and other agencies would work together in response. The governor, of course, being the final decision maker, which I think is absolutely appropriate with advice from the health secretary and other, others who are involved. And also that we pay careful attention to protecting individual liberties, the due process procedures for involuntary isolation quarantine that I talked about earlier. And then finally, there's some other important provisions that are in it to protect individual rights, but also make sure that society can protect itself as well. So uh, I'm hoping that we did a good job. Uh, we still are not at the end of this, sadly, uh, but so far I've been pleased with the way it's worked and very pleased that members of the New Mexico State Bar, many of them have come forward who are not public health attorneys, there aren't really too many of us who do public health law here, uh, to participate if needed, and the courts have stepped up to make that possible. So I hope everyone plays its part to minimize, mitigate, we call it, the impact of this terrible pandemic that we are facing. I'm an optimist, uh, Kathleen, so I'm gonna end on a positive note. Um, I've lived in New Mexico full time, since I graduated from law school in 1977. And one of the reasons that I have stayed here and made this my home is the incredible heart 
uh, and I'm choking up as I talk about this, literally, the incredible heart and goodness of most, if not all, of the people of New Mexico. Sometimes it's not always expressed that way, but look at the responses we've had to say the Cerro Grande fire, when people opened up their homes to the people from Los Alamos County who were displaced from their homes. Uh, just incredible acts of kindness. And I know that's happening now all over the state and all over the country. So we will get through this. Uh, I am fully confident of that. We will be in a different world probably in many ways once we do. We will get through this and we will be, I think, a better society having gone through this terrible tragedy that, that we're experiencing now. Well, and I, sh I share that sense of optimism as well. And then the gratefulness for being here in New Mexico during this time, uh, surrounded by many wonderful people, uh, politicians and otherwise. So, so Cliff, this has been a great discussion. I want to thank our guest, Clifford Rees, uh, attorney, for joining us. Cliff, thank you so much. Really appreciate your time. Uh, and you can connect to every Ethics Now episode on www.ethicsnow.org or on all major podcast platforms. Visit our Ethics Watch Facebook page to suggest topics or guests or email us at ethicsnowshow at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and see you next time on Ethics Now. Be well.